Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. I'm excited to announce some upcoming webinars that I'll be conducting. There will be two three-part webinars, the first of which is intended for former cult members or people who were in relationships with controllers or narcissists who are looking for deeper insight into their healing process. The second series is for the families and friends of those who have been in those kinds of environments and want to understand how to help support their loved ones and also how they can cope with these difficult moments and stresses placed on these relationships with their loved ones. The first of the three-part series for former members will premiere Thursday, September 8th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. At the same time of day, the following two Thursdays as well, the 15th and the 22nd. The second webinar intended for families and friends will premiere Thursday, October 6th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And at the same time of day, the following two Thursdays, October 13th and October 20th. These first rounds of webinars are going to be premiered live, so you'll be able to ask questions in the chat that I will then answer at the end during the Q&A session. The individual cost for these three-part webinars is $150 U.S. The bundle price for both webinars is $250 U.S. If you're unable to attend live, the webinars will be available for purchase through my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com or on our Vimeo page, where you can download or stream them anytime. You can find the link in the show notes of this episode. Each meeting will be one hour long, a 45-minute presentation with 15-minute Q&A. I truly look forward to speaking with all of you in a new and more intimate way. Stay tuned for more similar offerings as we are planning to launch many, many more video lectures on various subjects, all of which will be available for download and streaming anytime. You can find more information on my website. Thank you and be well. Hi, everyone. Today on the show, I have a really lovely and smart woman, Esther Friedman. She's a licensed mental health counselor, expressive art therapist, songwriter, performer, author, and ex-cult member. In 2006, a cult took advantage of her uncertainty and her open-mindedness and her open-heartedness. It perpetrated what she now calls cultic identity theft. I love that term. In 2011, she left and found her voice by embracing, honoring, and protecting those core traits Telling her story through writing and songwriting has saved her sanity, and those vulnerabilities are now her strengths. The link to her site is going to be in the bylines of this show. Here's Esther now. so happy to have Esther Friedman with us today because she has a very interesting story to share and wonderful insights. And, you know, you're going to be able to talk to us about something that we haven't talked about before and in this way. So I want you to be able to introduce yourself more fully, a little bit about yourself and what brings you to the podcast, and then we'll start chatting. So Rachel, first, let me thank you for having me on. I am an ex-member. I'm also a therapist who works with ex-members. My primary mode really is expressive arts therapy. You know, I'm also a licensed counselor, but that's my, my background. I went to Leslie for expressive art therapy. 
And the cultic experience really, I guess, I don't even know where to start because honestly, like I was not young when it happened. I was in my early 40s and my life was just not going well, you know. And then I had this five year, I call it a misadventure. We'll get into that more later and came out of it. And then suddenly I was on a mission, you know, when I left, I was on a mission because it was just this floodgate of insight for me, like someone yanked open a dam or something. And so it's become this kind of mission. I'm I'm on the cult buster mission, as many ex-members are, which has led to, you know, a private practice where I work with ex-cult members, our family members, counseling them. Finished a book that I'm trying to publish called The Gentle Souls Revolution, based on my experience, but also bringing in cultic studies from the leading experts and then interviewing ex-members. And then there's a whole like recovery section where I talk about, here are the things, here's a template for you. You know, here are the things that worked for me. I'm offering it to you. You take and customize as you will, you know, what works for you, you know? So that's, that's the, <laughs> that's one introduction. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a good one. Right. And I, I, I'm glad that you're putting together that book and, and that it's also going to be something that offers people uh, some of the how-tos and the, well, here's the issue, but also maybe here's what you can do because the, the practical piece is sometimes lacking in some of these books that take a deep dive into the psychology of it, but then you're left with the, and therefore, and then there's nothing, right? There's nothing there. I really noticed that. I mean, I am all about people writing their memoirs, but I have noticed that there's not a lot of, here's how to recover out there, you know, really and that's what I tried to do. The book has actually got three sections per chapter. You know, there's memoir-ish, here's something that I experienced. And then there's, you know, the section of analysis, research, how it ties into, you know, our human wiring, our need for connection, community, how important that is, and then recovery. Really helpful, really practical. And so you were saying that things were not going the way you had wanted or would have liked, or you were not happy. So maybe take us back to that time in your life. So maybe, you know, maybe it's helpful to start with this idea of the gentle soul, because I have for my entire life been empathic, compassionate, creative, a little flighty, and, you know, wanting to help everybody. I was wired that way. I got a lot of, oh, you think too much, you're too sensitive, you know, you need to blah, 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 you need to toughen up. And all that did for me was make me uncertain and wipe away any confidence that I had, okay? So I enter adulthood without any foundation of confidence. A lot of dreams, a lot of hopes, no confidence. And that makes life really difficult. Right. I, you know, just sticking with this for a moment, even though, you know, I know there's so much more to talk about, um, that idea of people being called too sensitive, very interesting thing, because I think, yeah, some people think that they need to toughen people up and they need to inform them that they're being too sensitive, but it doesn't make you any less sensitive to be told that you're too sensitive. It just, I think, makes you feel invalidated and misunderstood and alone. And I think also self-critical because maybe there is something that's too fragile about me or too open, vulnerable. 
So I'm wondering, even just going into your, the, your therapist brain for a moment, because this is probably a, not an oversensitivity, but a sensitivity of yours as it should be. What is a better way to respond when somebody is a feeling person where they wear their heart on their sleeve? I love this question because it's really at the center of this book. To me, look, there's no such thing as thinking too much or being too sensitive. You're not too sensitive. You're a sensitive person. You don't think too much. You're thoughtful. And a better response, you know, instead of internalizing it, well, what, what people are doing are pathologizing emotion, right? And emotion is part of being human. <laughs> and so it's, you know, you reject, actually, it's, you know, this is part of what I say in my recovery, like reject that label. You're a sensitive person and your job is to protect your emotion, emotional, you protect your heart. And, you know, that requires boundaries. And when you have boundaries, you don't, you don't absorb these messages quite as much as like, there's something wrong with you. You're never going to make it in this world. You're too sensitive. You know, that is bullshit. That early childhood messaging and wiring set me up to be exploited. I didn't know what my worth was. I didn't value myself, right? I didn't have confidence. I didn't know how to say like, you know, something I think I'd rather not do that. <laughs> it's really, you know, in some ways that simple. Right. And so I know we're starting with the clinical and then we'll move into the personal. But I have another question about that for you, which is that there's some people who don't like to be the decision maker, like with friendships, with partners. What movie do you want to see? Well, what movie do you want to see? Because I'll go see the movie I don't want to see, but I'll be so much happier knowing that you're happy that you're seeing the movie that you want to see. It can interfere with decision-making, feeling confident because you're so worried about the other person more so than you. And I think for some people, they don't know then what they want because it, it doesn't matter as much as pleasing the other person. There's an example that I gave a long time ago with a because of a relationship that I had been in my next relationship, somebody said to me, would you like some water? Because it was a hot day. And I said, sure. And he said, how many ice cubes do you want? I thought that's an option that someone could actually care about how cold you want your, really? Like that's a question people can ask and, and, and that you can have an opinion and it's okay. And someone wants to accommodate you? That was a whole new concept for me. So I'm wondering about that for you, if that was something that also led into you being accommodating to somebody else. You know, it's it's actually a really good segue into how I ended up in this group because it definitely did. My sensitivity and not wanting to make other people uncomfortable stopped me from saying no to a number of things, right? I think, honestly, like it's really damaging to <laughs> be feeding someone the message, you don't matter, what you want doesn't matter. And there is some way in which there's a certain profile of human, the general soul, that really takes us to heart and becomes the caretaker, becomes the giver, and finds it intolerable to know that well, I got angry at someone that made them uncomfortable or I said no to someone when they wanted something from me. It's okay for you to get angry at someone. It's okay for someone else to be uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And sensitive people can make suppositions that the other person is unhappier than they really are. And they've probably forgotten about the thing that you're still obsessing about, feeling like you disappointed them or 
made them angry. Yeah. So a lot of energy, cognitive energy, you know, emotional energy, time gets lost to that process. Oh, you're speaking my language. So now I want to, you know, give you the floor here. Please go ahead. So the entree into this group, I'm 41, right? So I told you I'm not young and it's been decades and I, I think nothing was going right. And I was right on the tail end of a relationship too. Like this makes me laugh now because it's right out of a movie, but I had plans with my then boyfriend to get together and talk about the fact that we were breaking up and I was at Whole Foods getting provisions. I shit you know, I was getting breakup snacks, okay? I was drained from work. You know, I'm as an expressive arts therapist, I usually end up working with people with disabilities or, you know, brain injury or elders with dementia. And, you know, let's face it, you're not going to get paid a lot to do that. So I was feeling really drained. One relationship after another was blowing up. I'm living in Boston, super expensive. And I'm like, how am I going to make it here? All of those hallmarks of adulthood just felt unreachable for me and had always felt unreachable. So I'm lying at Whole Foods and feeling sorry for myself family next to me. It was mom and dad and two kids, a boy and a girl. And mom looked at the cover of magazines and looks at her daughter, who I'm guessing was about nine, and says, what do you think of that cover? And the daughter rolled her eyes. So looking back, it's like, well, this probably happened a lot. And then she turned to me and she said, what do you think? And I looked at the magazine. I'm at Whole Foods. It's a picture of Zen Garden. Part of me was thinking, why is this person talking to me? Because honestly, in Boston, that's unusual. <laughs> and part of me was like, someone is engaging me and snapping me out of this fog. It, that's where the cognitive dissonance started, really. I mean, it was with me the whole time, but we really got seated right at the beginning because, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm from the Midwest, so I'm not naturally suspicious and most general souls aren't naturally suspicious. But, you know, a few years in Boston was kind of like, what was this person talking to me? But anyway, I didn't want to make her uncomfortable. So I said, oh, that looks great. And it did look great because I was miserable and I was looking at a Zen garden, right? So <laughs> looking pretty awesome. But then, you know, she starts to engage me in conversation and her husband joins in and we're yakking. You can picture it as a pretty long line behind us and the cashier's trying to get us through. We're talking and in that short amount of time, like between making the purchase and going out to the parking lot, you know, I they know that I, I'm a songwriter, by the way. They know that, you know, and, you know, oh, and she paints and he's a writer. And, you know, all of a sudden there's this common ground. Right. And he said, it's been really great talking to you. I really enjoyed it. We should exchange phone numbers. And I said, great. And we did. All right. So interesting. Sometimes when people ask me the question, how come you got involved, that it, sometimes it's a how and a why question, but sometimes it's a when question. And this is very much about the timing. Yeah, much more about timing for me. Yeah. In fact, oddly, like, like I'm like, did someone orchestrate things? What is going on here? Right. You know? Right. Well, people also who believe in signs will absolutely jump into this scenario and see it as such. Whether or not you believe in it, it can feel like it is sort of, it's been crafted by something greater than you. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. And it did. You know, actually, I think that's a really good observation because it really felt like, oh, suddenly this really kind person dropped into my life. Because, you know, after we had the initial encounter, I went home, boyfriend blew me off, we broke up. I'm feeling sorry for myself. 
And I also am not making this up. It was constantly raining in Boston that year. That spring, it was spring of 2006 and it was pouring. Like I would, you know, leave work and it was like, here we go, you know. So, you know, everything seemed to kind of reflect my mood. And this person kept trying to reach me. And I was very slow. And this was pre-cell phone for me. I didn't have a cell phone. I was very slow in getting back to her and she kept calling and just persistently calling. And then, you know, one day I was home and we made a coffee date and we got together and basically she nurtured a friendship for, I don't know, maybe three months. You know, I didn't know there was a group. We just got together and took walks and went out for coffee and went to the MFA and she asked me a lot of questions and I was naive and just worded out, you know, she was like available for me to tell her all my problems. And Lisa did not, that was her name. She didn't reveal much about herself. And I, you know, at one point was like, why do I talk so much about myself when I'm with you? And she said, well, it's good. It's different, isn't it? And, and, it, and it is, you know. So I said, well... Yeah, but what about you? How did you meet your husband? And she said, oh, we met in an acting class. And then she got really uncomfortable and she changed the subject. And I didn't want to make her uncomfortable. So interesting. I love the, the, this recurring theme. It's so important to keep coming back to it because you see how it played a part in these moments. And it is also something significant that people need to watch out for just uh, you know, as we move forward, seeing the warning signs. If you find that you're talking and revealing, and the other person isn't, then, you know, you have to, at some point, take a step away and wonder if you're sharing too much and also wonder why you're the only one. And she was really persistent also. I mean, that that can just sort of, you know, exhaust someone into saying, okay, fine, I'll call you back. That's a red flag. You know, in my case, I think I just Honestly, you know, on the one hand, this feels like it was orchestrated from some, you know, otherworldly place. But on the other hand, I feel like I kind of bumbled into it. It was like, oh, at home. Okay, I'll take the call. But I, I want to tell you, Rachel, I never once got her live on the phone when I called her back. And that is because I didn't have her phone number. I had a voicemail service and I didn't know that. So I thought I was calling her phone. <laughs> Because she told me it was her phone number, right? So I only found this out later. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but because, you know, I was in long enough that they were grooming me to go out and recruit. And part of recruiting was, or making new friends, as it was called, was you need to get a voicemail service for your own safety. I'm bringing this up just because I want to pull out the red flags that did, you know, I wasn't completely unaware of them, but my emotional need really barreled over them and justified these things. That is so much a part of this that you justify that you kind of explain it away and that it is a general theme that comes up here on the podcast a lot that you assume that what's true for you is true for other people. And if you are empathic, if you're sensitive, kind, you're trustworthy, that matters to you. And so you're going to assume other people are. And I'm not saying people need to move through the world being suspicious, but they just need to be aware that they might be attributing certain characteristics and qualities to someone else that they don't have out of an assumption of similarity. Yeah, I think what you said is so important. 
because I refer to this book called Talking to Strangers a lot in the book that I wrote, and it's by Malcolm Gladwell, based on this social science theory called, I think it's truth default mode, which is the theory that the reason that we can get conned is because most people walk through the world trusting first, you know, assuming the best first, because as a, a race, we need to collaborate. You know, that is how we survive, that you only start to mistrust once you've collected enough evidence. <laughs> this person is lying to me or they're playing with me. You know, there's something wrong here. So I think for those of us who are gentle souls and walk through the world assuming the best in everyone, it's really important to know that, you know what, not everyone deserves your trust. Not everyone deserves for you to assume the best in them because they're trying to play you. You want to assume the best or you want it to like, oh, they must be having a bad day or maybe maybe some childhood wound, right? Like it plays right into the gentle soulness of wanting to be the helper and fix and heal, you know? Wow. Okay, so then here you're leaving messages on what turns out to be voicemail. So already there's this power differential. You've disclosed your personal information, your private number, but she hasn't. And you've offered your information and she hasn't. What happens next? So, you know, like I, I said before, there's, I think it was about three months. I don't have a real specific memory of us getting together, doing things, taking walks. So I, you cannot make this up kind of a thing. But I think I literally said to her something to the effect of, you know, is this all there is to life? There must be more to it. I can imagine as somebody who is making new friends for this group that it was like, bing, here's my big chance, you know. And she said, how would you like to meet other people who discuss questions like this? And I get together with friends every Tuesday and Thursday and we laugh a lot and we have ideas that are tools for living. And at this point, you know, it's three months. i I trust her. I think she's a little odd, but she's kind and she's a good listener. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, I'm picturing a potluck. Right. <laughs> and then she said, one more thing. It's very important that you don't tell anyone about this. It's private just for you, which again, red flag. Did I notice it? Yes. Did I barrel past it? Yes. Because my need overrode the self-protection, self-preservation instinct. Right. And then even as you're telling the story now, people are going to be having a reaction to the fact that she was not up front with you from the beginning and she didn't tell you what her intention was. Okay. So then, so what happened? So you went? We didn't get to the group right away. First, she was like, I'm going to introduce you to another friend. And again, I'm not sure how much longer this happened. Like maybe a couple of weeks later, I went and met her and she introduced me to this guy, Robert, who was another friend. But really, he was the cult leader and he was betting me. But of course, I didn't know that at the time, you know. And so I met with them for coffee. And <laughs> oh, my gosh, Rachel, again, it's just so funny to me when I look at it, because I'm always thinking, you really can't make this up. It was pouring rain. And I said something to the effect of, I, she introduces us, and I said something to the effect of, you know, something about the weather, you know, the constant rain. And he said, it has been said that raindrops are angels' tears and that the angels are crying. I was like, cool, because I've been crying a lot, you know, like I'm crying with the angels, right? <laughs> I mean, I have to say... 
when I was in the group, nobody but my husband had any idea I was doing this. Okay. But after I left, because it was so secretive, I was like, I'm telling everybody. <laughs> so I was telling my friend Phyllis about this moment. She was like, Esther, you have no idea how quickly I would have been running away. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, great. The angels are crying. Me too. <laughs> so we sit down, you know, get coffee. He kind of, you know, charged right into the ideas that they were studying and particularly this this origin story of we none of us really belong here where we begin as essence from the starry world and we come to earth to learn to learn a life lesson about a fundamental flaw you know fatal flaw kind of a thing which is very common in cults right that's that, that each cult has some kind of a, like you have a fatal flaw there's some language around that and Honestly, that felt magical to me because I had always felt like I don't belong here. And I realized again, in looking back, that Lisa told him I was set up, right? But the moment I'm like, oh my God, these people get me. <laughs> right. Right. So there, just quickly to interject, there have been studies done about a lot of groups. And also there one time it happened with a certain televangelist who was big, who would have audiences of thousands where he had ringers in the audience, you know, who would go over, strike up a conversation, collect data, and then send it to people behind the stage the lady in the fourth row with the red shirt, she just had back surgery. She's going to need a quote unquote healing with her, you know, you're going to see her pain, et cetera. So yeah, information is gathered. That's good information for me to have because I didn't know about this televangelist. It's like this group, which at the time called itself simply school. The name changes, but it kind of, you know, I said, oh, here's a good strategy. <laughs> this is what the televangelists are doing. It works for them, you know? <laughs> so so we have this copy. There's a whole scene there, but I won't. It's just too long to get into. Towards the end of this maybe hour-long time, he talks about these ideas. And I'm not sure what he's talking about. I was getting a little disoriented. I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And he was like, well, I'm trying to explain to you. And then at a certain point, he said, well, how would you like to come to a group that we call school, we discuss these ideas. And he said, how would you like to try a pre-five-week experiment? That's what how he put it. And so then the conversation went kind of like, a free five-week experiment? I mean, is there a cost? And he said, well, there's a tuition, but we've never turned anyone down for financial reasons, which is a complete lie, but <laughs> more on that later. And I can't remember exactly how it went, but you know, it ended up with me saying, Sure, why not? It's a free five-week experiment. If I don't like it, I'll leave. So he's like, great. And then he says, don't tell anyone about this. It's private just for you. And, you know, second time, exact same verbiage. I mean, I also wonder how much everything is planned uh, or if some of it is happenstance. But when a leader says something that doesn't really make sense, and then they say, I'm going to offer you this opportunity so that you understand if they had been clear to begin with, what would be the enticement right, for you to want to sign up for a five-year thing? Because you'd say, well, no, I got it. I totally got your message. It was very clear. So I just think it comes out in this jumbled way, maybe on purpose, so that you can sign up for something to help decipher it. 
Yes, I think that's very insightful. And everything was planned, Rachel. Like this way she approached me in the grocery store and kept persistently calling. It was all mapped out. And of course, I didn't find that out until later when I was being trained to make new friends. Wow. Yeah. The lingo. And for people just listening, there there have been air quotes around a lot of the things that you've been saying, like make friends, make new friends. Right. So, right. Some of the language is so purposely disarming and safe and usual. So you think you're just going to be doing something usual and making new friends. Like, What would be wrong with that? All right. So did you, you did this five week? Yeah. So I did the five week thing and that's, you know, five weeks, it's really the love bombing phase, right? Like just to give you a little bit of a picture of it, they used to meet at a lion's club and there were two rooms, like there was a large room and a small room. And when you are new to the group, what they used to call a younger student, they used the terminology of student since it was called school. Then you're kind of shepherded into the smaller room with all the newer people. You start learning about these ideas that they said the teachers in the school said were secret esoteric ideas that were verbally passed down, like a verbal tradition. They just were like, these are ancient ideas. You know, Shakespeare may have been in a school, you know, like Hans Christian Andersen. We, we read a lot of Hans Christian Andersen and there's this insinuation that he may have been in a school. So anyway, younger class is getting introduced to these ideas and these processes, you know, we had what we called five-week aims where we would state like in the next five weeks, my aim is to fill in the blank and this number of times. And, you know, it was supposed to be like, I don't know, in the language of today, you know, it's it's like you're just trying to accomplish goals, right? It's kind of that superficial, right? But, you know, you feel like suddenly I've stated it in front of these people. I've got cheerleaders and support. And, you know, the weird thing, Rachel, is that Everything about my life changed for the first time in my life. Like I met my husband. He wasn't part of the group. That's a whole other, probably too long of a story to get into. But suddenly I had a really serious relationship that was clearly a long-term committed relationship for the first time in my life. I got a full-time job. Did I like the job? No, but I convinced myself that I did at the time. So I felt like, oh my God, I just, you know, this group and suddenly all those hallmarks that seem so far away and unachievable for me, I'm achieving them. And of course, I gave credit to the group for that. So, Right, right. Well, welcome to confirmation bias. And I'm sure they would, they, they were happy to take credit for all of these things as well. I am glad, though, that you met someone who you were able to have a significant relationship with. I mean, that is a very nice thing. The group may or may not have anything to do with it, but still, I'm happy for you that that happened. No, I don't think group was very happy when they realized I had met somebody. So the interesting thing about that is, you know, these groups all become confessional, right? All cults do. And I, some re- for some reason, I mean, I there were so many things that I was naive about, but I was very protective of that relationship. I wouldn't talk about it in the context of the group. So, so that's, you know, it's like an interesting thing. It's also obviously, not obviously, but it's why I left, you know, because <laughs> I wanted to keep my marriage. Right. So, but they were not happy with it because it was a, it was a threat in some way. You were going to have divided attention. What, what were they not happy about? It's interesting because there was a mixed message there. I mean, when I started dating him, I didn't tell anyone. And 
we have what they call the sustainer, right? Could be like, if you think of 12-step meetings, it's like a sponsor, right? So I would meet once a week with my sustainer, you know, and talk to her about whatever, you know, whether it was school related, not understanding the the ideas or struggling with an assignment. We did literally get assignments. It was like grade school. And, you know, or, you know, something that was going on in my life, I would talk to this person. I didn't tell her that I'd started dating someone. And, oh no, I did tell her I started dating someone. And then when it got serious, I didn't, I didn't go into detail about it. She was upset because I hadn't been filling her in. Like, oh, I didn't realize this, you know, this relationship was so serious. Why haven't you been telling me? And I remember finding that kind of odd. Again, like the red flags were there. I was aware of them, but I really was just needing a foundation, a structure, you know, a support. So I, I barreled past it. And the thing that I guess got confusing is at some point when we got married, the group literally threw me a champagne party and was like, oh, congratulations. But the leader was like, you know, I remember when we first met, you were single and look at how far you've come. So again, like kind of taking credit for the fact that not now you're getting married, <laughs> you know, subtext because you're in school, you know. So, but then, you know, that was about two years in, right? Th- three years in when I left a couple of years later, the husband was being demonized and he's controlling you and all that BS, you know, so. Okay. Right. So interesting though, I'm wondering before telling more about your experiences, how were you able to kind of toggle between worlds? Because here you had the group and its way of thinking. And there's this whole idea of these people who, who feel that they're part of the ascended masters and you're learning from them. And then here you're, you're having a real life relationship in the real world. And so how did you manage both those worlds? So. At first, this group was twice a week, right? And it had these assignments. But I kind of went in and I assume most people go in thinking it's not going to devour much more time than that. But if it's called, so of course, very slowly but surely, it starts to take more time, more energy, more focus. So, you know, this is something that comes up and I swear to God, every conversation you ever have with someone who's revealing the cultic misadventure like the frog in the pot right like you don't know until you're boiling that you're getting cooked right so the thing is uh, it starts getting a little hard to talk about just to explain but it was so secretive you know they started out with don't tell anyone this is private just for you so you're really literally not supposed to tell anyone but I told my I told him like like maybe the third day I was like I do this thing every Tuesday and Thursday night. And he said, look, you know, if this thing is helping you, it's not my business. You know, I'm not going to, I mean, <laughs> it's like a normal kind of supportive response from someone. So <laughs> we started calling it thing, literally. I want a thing. <laughs> okay, I'll see you after thing. <laughs> but really, that was all he knew that every Tuesday and Thursday I would disappear. No one else knew about it, which when I look back and I'm like, I kept that secret for five years. How did I do that? (laughs) You know, like my friends were noticing my odd behavior and my family is all over the country. So they didn't really know, you know, they weren't in 
close enough vicinity to like observe the weird changes in my behavior, right? But my friends were going like, oh, you're, you're suddenly very busy. But, you know, it wasn't too busy. I could still see them. It wasn't interfering with my, my relationship too much, you know? I'm just curious, you know, sometimes when people go to meetings, to school, to the thing, they come back from that feeling different and kind of have to land back on earth. Did you find that you came back home feeling a little different after attending these meetings? Oh, that is such an interesting question because one of the requirements of the group was that after the class, you were supposed to observe an hour of silence. And most of the time, or maybe in the beginning, I did that observing an hour of silence thing. So I would not go home right away, you know. And there was something in that transition that they used to say seal off the work and it really did. It was like, okay, I've transitioned out of this this world that is not like anything else, you know, <laughs> back onto life. You know, at a certain point we moved in together. I'm like, come home and my boyfriend's watching TV doing something normal. And I it actually was kind of a relief, you know. I was like, oh, after sitting around talking about ideas, now I get to watch TV, you know, things that normal humans would do. Right. So then you had a model for compartmentalization and then you could shift back. Okay, got it. So you'd be sitting around talking about ideas. So can you give us some examples? It starts out specifically with this idea that Gurdjieff called multiplicity, which, you know, it's kind of like IFS, internal family systems, right? Everyone has an inner cast and crew. You never really know who's taking the wheel and steering the ship. These, this cast and crew is not in communication with each other. So internally, you're in conflict. And you're not really even aware of it. And so there's this idea of multiplicity and you're not aware of it. And then there's this other idea that toggles along with it that's man or woman does not know him or herself. So, you know, you have these teachers who have been doing the work longer. And of course, they can see you more clearly than you can see yourself, which is also very culty, right? Like the the leadership is always more informed about who you are than you are, you know? So it kind of starts there, you know, and the things that you mentioned the five-week aim earlier, they couched as experiments to observe yourself, to get a, you know, a, a more objective perspective on who, who you are. You know, it, it's a depersonalization process, you know, and we used to have to do these things they, called self-observations. Again, I think this comes from Gurdjieff, where you have you don't have one brain, you have three brains, but we're going to call them centers. Three centers, emotional, intellectual, and physical are the body center. And you're going to observe and, and then you're going to bring these observations to class and share them with, with us and we're going to discuss them. So confessional environment sewn in. And the thing you're doing, there was a really specific formula for these observations is you're depersonalizing your own thoughts the entire day when you do this. As a function of the emotional center, I observe, fill in the blank. I observe, and when that happened, I felt, fill in the blank. 
Wow, that's so interesting. I'm thinking about the detachment from the self and that that's reinforced during every part of the day. It's very interesting because it can it can make people feel disconnected from the self and kind of fragmented and not grounded and you know, doesn't have a positive impact on a lot of people. But for some people it feels a bit relieving, like a freedom. Right. Right. I mean, right. You know, if, if we're using me as the, the poster child, which we are, I wasn't too happy with myself. Right. So all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this isn't me. You know, me feeling miserable is a function of the emotional center. It's not my personality. It's not my identity. It's not my personality. Right. So then I'm free from that. And then it also frees me to become someone else, somebody who's more functional, more enlightened, you know, more capable. Right. Yeah. So then you didn't feel as encumbered by so much emotion and heaviness. Yeah. You know, on top of that, you have this sustainer. And at first, the sustainer is, in fact, very helpful. You know, somebody who talks to you a couple of times a week, helps you think things through, helps you make decisions. So it was working for you in a lot of ways. And so then I wish there was sort of like dramatic music we could use at this point, right? When things change. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I am also working on kind of a musical theater piece on this. Because <laughs> it's just, it's so, it's a story that needs to be told in a lot of different ways, I think. But all right. So three, five week experiment, then, you know, that ends in Robert you know, approaches me and says, do you want to continue? And I, I was like, yes, sign me up. And he was like, you're doing very well. And I felt great because the big chief is telling me how great I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, first year is kind of like I start dating in a serious relationship. I start looking for a job with the help of my sustainer. And that was its own kind of animal. Like it was just like, send out a hundred billion resumes a day and make cold calls and knock on office doors, things that I would never do. Okay. And I did it and I got the job. And, but the end result was, I think this is kind of an important point. I, I didn't want to do any of that. And my sustainer was like, you have to do this. You have to do this. And then it worked. But Rachel, there was this emotional payoff for me where I, I realized how afraid of people I was. And when I was forced to engage in that way, in this very kind of aggressive way, I was like, oh, a lot of my fears of other people is really bullshit, you know? Like, people aren't thinking about me that much, you know? <laughs> Even though I'm uncomfortable going into an office with a resume and handing the resume to the receptionist, my fear is that, you know, I'm going to be judged and they're going to be talking about me, but actually the, the receptionist takes my resume and forgets about me. There was something very freeing about that, you know? So let's say like the first year or two, I'm getting benefits such as that. And the group is then starting to re require more and more for me and take more time and more focus. And the big thing in this group is, I don't know if they still do this, but they had, they have a holiday party every year. And by the way, this is never like presented as an option. It's like, we're having a party. You're throwing a party for your teachers and sustainers. It's part of, you know, the experiment, I guess. So the holiday becomes kind of a, a Petri dish of, you know, of, of social experiment, because at first it was like this fun thing that we put together. But of course, you can't invite your friends or family because no one knows about this group, right? 
And every year that holiday party takes more, becomes more demanding. There is more high stakes. It's the time of year that you're usually spending with friends and family, right? Being hijacked, being usurped. It very often happens. People are pulled away during what would normally be time with family. And then you feel like you have to make that decision. Um, and that's you showing integrity and whatever other words they might use. But yeah, they make you have to choose. But it's reminding me of uh, V Week, yeah. which was Nexium. Nexium, right. Keith Ranieri's birthday extravaganza, which started out as a party and then became a whole week of basically adore me for as long as possible. Um, but I find it so interesting too, as you said, that this, when, when you said a holiday party, I envisioned that the leadership would be throwing a party for the people who were there, who were paying, who were doing, right, so who were sustaining them. But no, you were throwing a party for the leaders. So interesting. Yeah, we were throwing a party for the leaders. And you know, every year it took more, it was, it, it was this really elaborate production. You know, we would choose a theme and we would, we would create menus based on that theme. And there would be, we would put together productions and musical, you know, performances and yeah, it was really elaborate. <laughs> and the, there was a lot of language around being fine or fineness or re course, you know, but we, we're trying to refine our vibrations, you know. So this party needs to be of the finest vibration, <laughs> you know, blah, blah. But, you know, really what it was was just a holiday hijacking. So, you know, as this group is hijacking more and more of my time, my energy and my focus, taking away from my relationship with this person who became my fiance and then my husband. And also, I mean, I'm. I am the kind of person who needs to be creative in some way, shape or form. And so no time for that, right? Like no time to just work on a song or, <laughs> you know, do so, do a piece of art or something. So I'm actually getting more and more unhappy, but less and less sure of myself. So I've come in already insecure, right? And not confident. Then this group kind of gives me this false sense of confidence, but it's based on approval from them. It's based on me, you know, doing what I need to do for the group. It's based on me doing it the right way, in the way that is prescribed by this group. I mean, this is all just cultic shit, right? They all operate this way. And since I came in there feeling insecure in the first place, the cognitive dissonance just started amping up. But the more the cognitive dissonance amped up, the more I was like, I don't, I don't know who to trust. Like, I don't know who to trust. Can I trust myself? I don't know. I, I feel like I don't know my ass from my elbow. Wow. How uncomfortable. I'm, I, I have a question about that just physiologically. What were you experiencing? Because sometimes people find that it doesn't register intellectually or in terms of um, having words to put to it, but they feel something. And I'm wondering what it started to feel like for you. You know what? That's a really interesting question because I started losing weight and I wasn't heavy. I wasn't too thin when I started, but the weight loss was not attractive, trust me. And towards like the end, I was not able to sleep. You know, just not really, I'm not really, insomnia is not really usually my thing, you know? 
again, it was that frog in the pot thing. It took a while to really, it started getting more and more uncomfortable for me. And physiologically, I think it was this weird relationship with food. Like it just, you know, I, I, I don't even remember if I was eating or not. I just know I was losing weight and it was it wasn't a healthy weight loss. If you, if you saw pictures of me from back then, you would be like, you look kind of malnutritioned or something. Right. And so it could be that you've lost your appetite or just eating is uncomfortable because you're probably producing more stomach acid because things are feeling off and you're releasing chemicals and you're not sleeping You're out of balance. But it sounds like they built into the system that they were not going to be responsible for any of these things that were happening that were negative to you. And so you could, who were you supposed to blame if something was off? Was it you or? Yeah, it is. And yet it's also like kind of a reality check for me when I see pictures, you know, when you're in it, as you, as you know, you know, from your previous experiences with other things, you have no idea that, <laughs> You know, like something feels wrong. I don't know what it is. I don't really know what's going on. Well, yeah. I mean, as is the case with all of these groups, it, you're not trying hard enough, you know? The work thing struggle became kind of my central flaw, I guess. You know, I, I started that job that I tried to convince myself to like, and I hated it and got fired. And then I got another job and it was two years in and I got fired, you know? So... You know, there's this way in which when you're set up to fail like that, that it always becomes your fault. And this is very standard. I mean, I think every ex-member I've ever spoken to <laughs> talks about that, some version of that, you know, my fault. I'm not trying hard enough. I can never do enough. I'm not enough. So, you know, you get through the love bombing phase and then there's the you've been here long enough phase and then there's the you owe us phase, right? So well, let's say two and a half years in, we're at the you owe us phase. And also during this time, Rachel, I think if I didn't mention that personally, both my grandmother on my mother's side and my dad died. You know, there were family losses. And then Chris, my husband, and I got married in 09. So there was all this, like, I don't really know how I did everything I did, honestly. I don't know how I juggled it. Wow. Going to those significant losses, how was that treated in the group? The group was a little more tender with me than they were with other people. I'll explain that in a minute. When my grandma died, supportive, you know, went to Florida, didn't get any crap about that. When my dad, my dad had been very sick for a while. And then in the spring of 09, I think it was probably about this time of year, April, I just went home. I, they were in Cleveland. I was in the Boston area and I was at home for probably a month and a half because it was clear that his days were, you know, were winding down. And it's it's an interesting thing to me because I think there was a way in which the, my real self was like, there's no one on the planet. No one. Is, I don't give a shit. I'll, I will lose my job. <laughs> I don't care. I'm, no one's going to keep me from being here, you know? And the way the group responded to that was, they had a teacher calling me, you know, a few times a week, you know, being supportive, listening to me cry. So they, you know, stayed there with me, offering the support. I mean, and you know, like later, you know that this is a high interest rate, right? 
So I wasn't given, I wasn't hassled or anything like that. However, I saw other people who were like longer term members who lost. One woman whose father went into the hospital and they treated her very callously. Her father went into the hospital and it was during, God forbid, it was during the Christmas party. And she missed a lot of our work sessions. And I overheard this conversation. This was weird because it was fairly early on. I overheard her talking to one of the teachers and he was kind of giving her shit about not being there. And I thought it was weird. <laughs> it was like, my father's in the hospital. What, what's this? And she said to him, I don't want you to give up on me. So that was the weird, first weird scenario where I was like, oh my God, you know, but it didn't send me running away when it should have. <laughs> and the other one was there was a woman who lost her, who also lost her father and was talking to the group in that confessional way, you know, where someone would stand up and say, I need some help with something, which is, again, very typical cults, talking to the group about crying all the time. Now she had just lost her father and she called it self-pity. <laughs> and then the, the leader, Robert, took that and ran with it, you know, self-pity. Yes, of course, you know, what are you going to do about that? And I actually had a rare moment of courage where I stood up and I was like, she did just lose her father. And the woman actually kind of defended Robert, you know? So again, very typical in cults, you are squeezing the empathy and compassion out of human beings. To say something about that, that you got the courage to stand up, to say that, it, you know, just having to say that it had to take courage for you to support someone shows the nature of how unhealthy the dynamic was there, that you're taking a risk by being kind and that she then needed to make sure that she still looked good in the leader's eyes. So you were left hanging probably for her to protect herself. Yeah. He had to protect him, right? <laughs> basically, I was contradicting him by saying, well, Shouldn't we have some compassion for somebody whose father just died? Yeah. Right. And also just going back to you getting all these calls during that week. Right. So it can come across as compassion if these were your best friends and they're checking in with you. Yeah. Mm. But if it's a school, then typically what you would want is for them to let you have your time and that you don't have to think about them and you don't have to report back to them and they're not going to use this for their own gain to make you feel indebted because they were there with, like, you know, using these moments is really, really wrong. But the most respectful thing would have been to just let you be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at the time I was extremely raw and I got to cry to my, the teacher and I just didn't, you know, I obviously didn't know that there was such a high interest rate, you know, thought maybe she just cared about me, but, you know. So I have to say after the, after my wedding and after my dad died and I, I was out a lot, you know, during that year, right. I was in Cleveland for that month and a half. And then when I got married, my husband and I did this road trip as a honeymoon, you know, and when I got back, it was like that honeymoon's over. And so is your honeymoon in school. Like <laughs> there will be no more love bombing. And so there was this kind of steady buildup of me realizing like, there's no support here, except that they're supporting me. And I don't know how, because it's so ass backwards and gaslighty, right? Like 
the support is we're going to support you in doing the experiments and doing the work as prescribed by school, you know, and if you fail, that's because you're not trying hard enough, which is, again, the prescription in each and every cult that ever existed. And me feeling worse and worse about myself and the cognitive dissonance amping up and amping up. And eventually it all leads to what? It leads to us making new friends, i.e. recruiting people because they need more members. I mean, we're all paying tuition, $350 a month, right? So, you know, at a certain point, they start training me to make new friends. And I'm seeing that what I, the things that they are training me in are the techniques that were used on me by Lisa, right? In fact, Lisa was training me. And again, cognitive dissonance was just my head was exploding. I honestly, seriously, if I had stayed in that group another month, I think I would have been in the hospital because I couldn't function. There was, and I, the way I frame this in my mind and actually in the show, if I ever get it done is like, I had a, I had a court case going on and the inner rebels were like, are you paying attention to this? You know, wake up. And then there were the inner starry eyed believers who were like, yeah, but they really helped me. You know, I, I, you know, they really helped me when I needed to find a job. And I was so lost before I got in this group. And there was just a constant inner battle. And then when they wanted me to recruit people, I was like, this is something I have never wanted to do. I don't believe in it. So, right, the rebels are going, this is totally against my moral fiber, my ethics. It's, you know, I have to betray myself to do this. And the Star Yard believers are like, but what if, you know, I'm standing in the lot, a grocery store line and the person in front of me needs just the right help. And I'm denying them that help because I'm not willing to strike up the conversation and, you know, groom them in the way that I was groomed. Of course, I didn't think about it that way then, right? But that cognitive dissonance, ironically, is, I think, what finally became so intolerable. I mean, I I couldn't function, Rachel. Like, I I remember, like, (laughs) losing, after losing job number two, this was in 2010, the economy was in shambles. I was trying to find work and just making, you know, fucking up interviews or showing up at the wrong time. I couldn't neurologically. I, I, if somebody had like done an MRI, I don't know what my brain would have looked like. It really, I couldn't put things together. Oh, wow. Okay. Were you feeling frightened because of that? Yeah, I was terrified. And I think, you know, there's this double-edged short of I was terrified and that made me more dependent on the group. And I don't have anywhere to turn because no one knows what's going on. But just as Lisa approached me right at the right time, my husband confronted me right at the right time. I mean, I was coming unraveled. I kind of knew in the back of my mind that I'd not long for this group. And he found some stuff online. And one night I came home from class. It's a Thursday night. We're in bed, you know, falling asleep. And he said, I have to ask you something. He said, what is Odyssey study group? And I was like, I don't know. And he said, well, I found all this information online and it sounds like your group, the Odyssey study group, all these, you know, complaints about this crazy holiday party and, you know, people disappearing and all the money and, you know, they're spending. And he said, I went to your checkbook. I've been writing checks this whole time, by the way, to OSG. And I was like, I have never, ever asked, I never asked what OSG stood for. 
Wow. Okay. So two things. One is very often whenever there's been an article or an expose where the name of a group has been exposed, then they'll use an acronym or they'll change their name. And that's probably why you were never told that it was the Odyssey study group because you then would have gone online if you felt like you needed to and could have found this. Bravo to your husband for researching this and getting confirmation that this was not okay and that there's a history here of people being harmed by it. And for, for finding a time when you were kind of at the end of your day and it felt more kind of personal and relaxed and he just had a question. It sounds like he presented it really nicely. Yeah, that was the beginning of the end there, I guess. I mean, it. I didn't, honestly, I didn't go back after that. It was done for me. But there's like this whole kind of drama, you know, over the weekend talking to teachers about, oh, Chris confronted me and then they blamed him. And then at the end of the weekend, I was like, what the fuck have I been doing for the last five years? You know, like, and I didn't go back after that. Mm -hmm. And that he asked it as a question. I like that because he didn't say you're being manipulated, right? which can make people dig their heels in. But he just left it open. Yeah. I mean, I have to give him so much credit because, I mean, you know, and I know how maddening this is to have someone you love disappearing into some crazy group. You know, you have to try to navigate it. And and of course, you're going to lose your temper sometimes. But there was something instinctive, I think, where he knew when to do this and he knew what to say. I remember, actually, I forgot to tell you this. What he said was, are you sure you're not being manipulated? And I was at the end of my rope at that point, And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I can't say I'm not being manipulated because I don't fucking know, you know? And, and that question got under my skin. It was the right question. He left it open. It made me think. It made me wonder, <laughs> am I? Well, yeah, but <laughs> I just didn't want to admit it to myself. So then what happened? What were the next steps? I woke up the next day freaked out. I called my teacher. And by the way, I didn't call her. I called her voicemail because we didn't have the teacher's numbers. We just left them voicemails and then they would call us back. So, you know, the one-way communication, they have all the control, right? So when she called me back, I told her that he confronted me and she was like, well, I have to call Robert, ask him what to do, (laughs) which is very typical cult stuff, right? Let me go up the ladder. And then later that day, I can't remember if I talked to her directly or if she left a message, but she basically said, you have to tell your husband to mind his own business. And Rachel, I was like, that's the end of my marriage. If I do that, I had to choose. They pushed me into a corner to choose. I got off the phone with her. The weekend went by. I couldn't sleep. And it was Monday morning. I woke up before the sunrise. I Literally, I felt like the sun reached in my window and yanked me out of bed. It was like, you're getting up. I took a walk. There's a park near my house. And, you know, there's a, a, a soccer field and I was walking the path around the soccer field. And that's when the floodgate opened. I was like, it was really quiet. And I was like, oh, my God, I haven't felt this peace in so long. And I'm watching the sunrise. And, you know, it cut in the distance. Somebody was walking their dog. This is something I haven't mentioned earlier. But every once in a while, when people disappeared, Robert would like make this kind of tacit announcement like, there's been an event. I just recommend that you, you know, stay awake and you know that people who leave the source always regret it. But there was never any explanation, you know? <laughs> you just knew that so-and-so was not coming back to class anymore. And so I'm walking the path. 
I'm watching the sunrise. I'm thinking about, I have a choice to make here. Do I stay or go? And I think about the language of the source and I'm like, yeah, but that's the source, the sun. How dare he call his school the source? They're not the source of life, right? And I'm looking at the, the person walking their dog and I'm like, you know, of course, like every other cult, it's like, we've got the answers and everyone else doesn't, right? And I was like, that person looks pretty content and they don't have access to the source. Wow, that's so interesting. And also his reaction to when people are leaving in a healthy environment, when suddenly de- someone doesn't come back, you'll say, I hope they're okay, or I wish them well. Or you hope actually someone who is this sort of high spiritual person would, uh, or psychologically aware seemingly, might say, is there something that happened here that made the person feel that they didn't want to come back? But it was none of that. And there was something wrong with them and they were going to regret it. Yeah, which they were not. They would, I mean, they left because they would have regretted staying, not leaving. It's so interesting. Okay, so then you're... You see this person walking her dog. I love that. Just it sort of puts it in perspective. Like that person seems kind of cool with life and didn't need this. Yeah. Yeah. They seem fine. A lot of, there are a lot of, and I thought about like, there are millions of people all over the world who don't have access to the source who are fine. (laughs) You know, so that like the floodgate kind of opened and I realized I was like, God, I, I was like, I can't, I can't make any decisions without, I realized how dependent I was. I was like five years of never making my own decisions. Always feeling like I had to turn to the teachers, you know, or to my sustainer. By the end of that walk, I just let called called my teacher's voicemail and said, I said to her, either I'm making the decision or he is, you know, still, I'm still deferring to him, right? Even though I've had all these insights. She called me back and was not happy about that because I was jumping over her head, you know. But then end of the day, Robert calls me. He's this is actually kind of funny. This makes me laugh. He was very terse. He was like, you know, your husband is going to continue trying to control you. (laughs) Who's trying to control me? It was so weird. I was still like kind of in this double personality because I was talking to him as though he was making sense. But there was was a very loud, the inner rebels were like, what? You know, you're calling my husband a bully while you're bullying me. Okay, you know. You know, I said, Robert, and this is like, this is the first time I ever stood up for myself. I said, if I stay in school, my marriage will end and I'm not willing to do that. So I choose the marriage. Suddenly he got very insightful and he changed his tone and he said, okay, well, I'm trying to put myself in your husband's shoes. And I was like, what? We're so evolved. I mean, like losing weight. I can't find a job. I'm spending our money on this mysterious thing that leaves him out. I'm clearly a mess. And you're trying to figure out why my husband's worried about me. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because that's what I was thinking. And what I said was, okay, thanks, Robert. You know, and he was like, I love you. And I'll have, you know, this other teacher call you in a month. And I was like, great. <laughs> I never spoke with that teacher again. But that, you know, that was the end of it for me. But then just to kind of let you know, after that, Chris and I had actually planned another road trip. We were driving down from Massachusetts to South Carolina to go visit some friends. And I stared out the window the whole time watching this inner movie of the last five years of my life going, oh my God, 
I just came out of a cult and I was like piecing everything together. It was really interesting. Like the farther away we got from Massachusetts, the more perspective I had and the more perspective I had, the more I was like, I have let this group yank me around for the last five years. You know, just seeing how the deception seeded in the beginning just kept growing and growing and growing. And my, my sense of self was, you know, fragmenting. By the time I got home, I was, by the time we got back here, I was furious. I was like, I'm telling all of my friends and I'm telling my family, you know, because for this particular group, it's so secretive. And I honestly, I think the secretiveness of it is almost the most poisonous part of it. It separates you from everyone, right? And also I realized like I completely isolated because I'm no longer in the group, but I'm living in these memories that nobody knows about. I was going through the day doing normal things, but thinking, what the fuck just happened to me? And they were played out, you know, the scenes kept coming back and back. So I started talking to everybody. And then, you know, of course, we weren't supposed to reach out to the other disgruntled ex-students, right? Quote, air quote. (laughs) That's what these groups do, like the evil people who leave, you know. So, of course, I reached out to them. And then, you know, and then, of course, I had to put up a blog because I really wanted to say, you know what, I'm not keeping your secrets anymore. And that was very, very healing for me. It was like, here's my story, you know. And, you know, then other ex-members started coming to the blog for a while. It was very, very active. Now it's just kind of up there as a resource. You know, the blog turned turned into, I realized I was like, I'm a songwriter. I have a soundtrack. So it turned into this, like several projects. And now the book, which is written, but, you know, I'm at the very beginning of the publishing part of that. And, you know, it's formulated. Let me put it this way. I feel like my recovery from this experience was kind of accidental. It happened because I was so angry <laughs> and I feel like there's this kind of reverse engineering that happened where it's like, okay, they wanted me silent. I'm not being silent. I'm taking back my voice. They told me a story that was complete bullshit. I'm taking, I'm taking ownership of this narrative and I'm going to tell it through my voice. You know, when I reclaim my voice in that way, I'm reconnected to my real true identity and I reclaim myself. And then I protect my time, my energy, my focus with everything that I've got. And that's, you know, that's where the kind of the gentle souls revolution came from, that idea. So, you know, speaking of the book, so, you know, I'm just like, here's, here's what happened. Here's my template. Are you a gentle soul? This might work for you, you know, kind of a thing. So that is what has unfolded from this whole misadventure. (laughs) Cautionary tale. (laughs) Yes. Right. Okay. So Two things that spring to mind. One is just the thought of telling your story. You know, for a lot of people, it's fraught with so much fear. And the trepidation is warranted um, because a lot of people will judge it or wonder what's wrong with you that, that you didn't catch the signs, you didn't follow, et cetera. And so people do take a risk. It sounds like it was an experience for you that you needed to have because you did want people to have a sense of your life so that you didn't have that isolation and it wasn't just rummaging around in your head alone. So I'm curious about what it was like to tell people and to get their reactions and then also how it's sort of in your experiences have informed the way you do work with your own clients now. I actually love that question because I feel 
extraordinarily lucky in a lot of ways. I don't, not everyone's going to have the resources and the social network that I have. You know, first of all, having a husband who somehow figured out how to approach me. Secondly, I had a circle of friends who, when I told them, they were like, I was really worried about you instead of what's wrong with you. Right. It was. And many of them were like, you know what? You were really vulnerable when that happened. You know, so insightful circle of friends. And also, I think the anger for me, I was too angry to be afraid. And that was really empowering. I was like, you know what? Fuck you. Come after me. I don't care. But I kind of knew they wouldn't because, you know, the secretiveness works against. (laughs) Although they did try to some legal stuff, but that's like long and convoluted and hard to explain. But, you know, I I do. I felt pretty safe, you know, and also may have been naive at stay on my part because they're, they're just as litigious as every other cult. But so for me, you know, it just felt cathartic and good. And, you know, I'm like, I'm going to embrace this anger and I'm going to let her rip. Now, I'm very aware that's not the case for a lot of people. You know, I'm very aware that there's so much fear around divulging such an experience, you know, because of victim blame, right? Which drives me crazy because of litigiousness and how these groups know how to manipulate the court system because of worried about it'll impact a job, right? If somebody finds out. So I kind of like to say, you know, look, if you've had an experience like this, tell somebody, tell a therapist, tell a best friend. You don't have to be the poster child, (laughs) but don't hold it inside because it's your voice is what is going to heal you. Your telling of your story is what's going to be the catharsis. You own this experience and validating your own emotions and, you know, perceptions. It's not that you weren't enough or that you didn't do it right. It's that these people lied to you. They betrayed you. They exploited you. They took advantage of your trust in them. They took advantage of some insecurities that you had. You are reverse engineering all of this gaslighting. And, you know, I guess, Rachel, at the center of that, since, you know, the center of that is identity, like true self as opposed to cult self, right? Authentic self. (laughs) Embrace that. Protect that, you know? Privacy is very different than secrecy, right? Right. It is. It's very different. I, I think in in a lot of groups too. If you don't share all of your stuff with them, you you're told that you're keeping secrets, as opposed to just upholding your privacy and your boundaries. I'm wondering, uh, coming from knowing that you are empathic, how would you guide people who you come across? who also have that without making them feel like they need to somehow get rid of that in order to be safe. How do you safeguard it, still maintain that piece of you, but protect it? I, I like to say, like, like, look, you don't want to walk around guarded all the time. However, you do need to protect it. So that's where boundaries come in and really respecting your own inner process, your feelings, your gut instincts, and knowing when to pump the brakes. Like, like, think of your empathy here. You're a therapist, right? Think of your empathy as though it's a precious gem. It is an asset that is very, especially right now, like 
mean spiritedness is is kind of all all over us, right? Like, yeah, you can't turn on the TV without seeing something horrible going on, right? So yeah, this empathy is it's a limited supply. <laughs> you can't offer it to everybody. You gotta you gotta keep it close and know that there are some people who don't deserve it. And that's where that comes back to the general soul. Not everyone deserves your compassion, your empathy. You protect it. You don't shut it down because then you're you're not yourself and you're still pathologizing this thing that is very central to who you are, you know, and then you're gaslighting yourself. Like there's something wrong with me. There's not something wrong with you. We live in a hard world. You've got to protect yourself. You got to protect this. But in fact, we need more empathetic people. <laughs> we need more people with compassion who are kind. So don't just give it away. You know, just know when to pump the brakes. And if somebody disrespects you with setting a boundary. That tells you something about them. Right. And sometimes you don't find that out about a person if you just always say yes. Uh, and so sometimes it's just a good experiment to try to say no, or maybe, maybe not, or not right now, or whatever it is, and see how they respond to it. Yeah. If someone tries to bulldoze you or makes you feel guilty or, you know, gets angry at you for saying, I'm not so, I'm not sure, then you might not want to spend a lot of time with that person, right? <laughs> I mean, if I had said to Robert, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know about this five-week experiment <laughs> and he had, you know, given me a hard time about it, I think I would have been like, well, actually, you know what, this brings me to one last point about couples. They misuse trust, okay? They usurp trust. Listen, I trusted Lisa, right? I extended trust to Robert because of Lisa. There's kind of no like prescription for this, but it really comes back to trusting that empathy, you know, trusting your own emotional response to something or your gut instinct response. How is your body responding to this situation or this person? And I mean, it's very much like kind of where the trauma world is going right now, right? Like the somatic experience is really, really important. And in fact, can often be trusted more than what you're thinking because your thoughts get confused. So interesting. Okay. Well, I, I know we're wrapping things up. If there's anything else that you wanted to make sure to mention. Um, and I also want people to know, you know, where to watch out for your upcoming book and your work and how to find you, et cetera. Well, probably the website, which is gsrhealingarts.com, is your best bet for finding out about whatever's going to happen, <laughs> whatever's going to unfold, which is at this point. And I, I feel like we got through it an awful lot. I can't think of anything else at the moment. There's always more, you know, it's just the nature of the beast, right? But, you know, Rachel, I, I thank you for doing what you do, which to me, Again, we need more kind, empathic people. So thank you for being on the planet. But also we need to educate the greater society that these people are out here and here are the red flags. This is what you need to be looking out for. And here are the ways to protect yourself. And that's what you're doing with your show. And I really appreciate that given what I've, my misadventure in the question. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the term misadventure. That really is. So good. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I think so many people want good things for 
their loved ones and people going out in the world, but you can't experience any of it if you don't have freedom. And so, you know, I think that's at the root of being able to achieve what you want to achieve and feel what you should be able to feel in this world. And especially having self-confidence, knowing that you don't have to hook yourself onto someone else as an anchor or as an answer. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I mean, you, uh, I, I love the way you express yourself. There's so many wonderful phrases and um, I'm sure your book is going to reflect that you're a wordsmith. So I think I could see us talking again, if there are other things that you want to be able to talk about and um, if, and when something comes out that you have produced, you know, in any form um, or media, you know, feel free to come back on to talk about it. I would love that. Sounds really good. Great to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. Thanks, Rachel. One more thing before you go. I want to thank Esther Friedman so much for how much she shared and She is one of these people I could have talked to for a very long time. There are people where you meet them and you think, "Hmm, I could see us hanging out. There is something really lovely about her and about what she's doing now in her life and what she's learned from her experiences. And I'm so glad that she was able to come on to talk about that. What is so important, I think, is for her to be able to now make sense of things but also feel strengthened and feel like she had the right when she got out to get angry and that sometimes anger is something that can sustain you as long as it doesn't get out of hand and burn you because it is a fire that can feel like it's raging within. But there are ways to channel it and there are ways to be able to diminish it over time But at first, I do think that when people get mad, what they're saying is something happened to me that wasn't right, and I have the right to be upset about it. So I want to be able to get into something that she talked about just a little. She talked about becoming dependent on the sustainer. It's an interesting word, sustainer, because... When you think of someone sustaining you, you get the sense that they are the one really holding you together. They're the ones giving you sustenance. They're the ones giving you what you need in order to live. But what can get lost in that is that you were able to do that for yourself before. You didn't need that person. This is especially applicable for people who got involved with controllers later on. The people who were born and raised in cults sometimes have a harder time taking in that message because they've always had the leader leading them. They've always had this person who has taken credit for sustaining them. But what's also true is that when you become dependent on the sustainer, you have this sense, you have this sort of internalized gaslighting, internalized false correlation that this person is keeping you alive or this person is keeping you happy or successful or whatever it was that they promised you. And so then you become dependent on them. You don't want to lose them because they are your source. 
And what's so interesting, when I think about people who will say to me, you know, I don't know really what to do when I look out, I've left a cult, I'm looking for the next person to be my leader, to be my question answerer, to be the one who has all the answers, to be the one who can sustain me. You want to be very wary of any group that only has one person there who is the sustainer. You want to be wary of a person who says, if you are with me, I will love you and I will hold you together and I'm the only one who can do it because there's never only one source of sustenance and there should never be one source of sustenance because if you believe that and you lose that person, you will fall apart. And so that's why when people, let's say, have a very happy marriage, they also have a good friend who they talk to, and they also still have relationships with family members. That's why when people go to a university, they connect with a professor and another professor. It is important to have people around you, but multiple people who are your sources of sustenance. And then what you want with these sources of sustenance You want them to be people who say, but you know what? You don't need me. Part of my role with you, if I'm really going to be this person who you're going to be going to for answers, is to help strengthen you to believe that you probably had the answer or you were on your way to getting the answer on your own. That's why sometimes when people come to me for counseling, I will jump in and offer ideas. But if part of the issue is that they don't feel like they can trust themselves because they've had to be dependent on someone else who made them feel they couldn't make decisions for themselves, I will often ask, what did you try or what did you say or what do you think before I answer that? And more often than not, the other person already had the answer that was going to work for them. They already had the thought that was the most helpful one. They already had action steps that they were planning that I could certainly support because I saw them as healthy. And so before you give this over to anyone else who is gladly going to take that power away from you, think about how handicapping it will be. Think about how much it's going to make you dependent and what if you lose that person. So make sure that when you're looking for people to support you, you also look inward towards yourself to support you and support your confidence and support your sense that you're capable in this world on your own, if need be. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.